Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. With geopolitics becoming an ever more important component for investors, I am delighted to be joined today by Jacob Shapiro of Perch Perspectives. Jacob cut his teeth under George Friedman, spending a decade at Stratfor, and now, with both cognitive investments and his own consulting firm, Perch Perspectives, Jacob is out on his own at what is shaping up to be a golden age for geopolitical strategists. With so many flashpoints seemingly emerging all at once, it seemed like the perfect time to chat with Jacob about Vladimir Putin's plans for Russia and Ukraine, Xi Jinping's plans for China and Taiwan, uh, Erdogan's plans for Turkey, assuming, of course, that he has one, and to get an overall sense of where we stand in a unipolar world in which two once and future superpowers are openly jockeying and challenging America's hegemonic status. This was fun. Well, Jacob, welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk to you at what seems to be <laughs> a time for you and the guys who inhabit your little corner of our world. It's going to be a busy few years, I suspect. Uh, it feels like vindication. It feels like all the things that we've been beating the drum about for all this time are, are finally starting to happen. So, for, I mean, for a while, I think some of us were, were looking in the mirror and wondering if we were crazy and if the world had right. passed us by, but uh, it appears not. There's so much to dig into, and we'll make sure we do that shortly. But there'll be plenty of people listening to this that aren't familiar with you. So, so perhaps you could just give us a little bit of your background, you know, your, your career path to this point. And, then, and I've got a very broad question I want to ask you to, to frame the discussion. Sure. So I, I took a very circuitous path to becoming a, a geopolitics expert. It was not what I thought I was going to do. I thought I was going to be an academic studying medieval Islamic philosophy back in the day. Um, graduated into the 2008 financial crisis, so that dates me, uh, and ended up an intern at Stratfor, which was a global intelligence operation. Um, and that just so happened to be a good time to be an intern there because the Arab Spring kicked off and suddenly if you knew Arabic and you knew some rudimentary things about Islamic theology, you were actually a rather valuable commodity. Um, so I started at Stratfor as a Middle East analyst and you know, for, for the past 12, 13 years, um, moving on from um, Stratfor to GPF to founding my own firm, Perch Perspectives, and working with companies like Cognitive Investments or writing for Lycaon, um, you know, have have gotten gl more global in focus, but started really as this very focused Middle East analyst and now have broadened out to become um, somebody who advises companies and investors around the world on how geopolitics affects their interests. Fantastic. So listen, what I'd love to kick off with is, and it sounds like such a simple question, but it's, it's something that... Um, I think it's worth framing again. You know, geopolitics is something that is is thrown around a lot, and I suspect is going to be thrown around a lot more in the years to come. So let's begin with a definition of what geopolitics is, the grand game. How should we frame it? Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you're asking this question, and uh, my my um, my academic bent maybe comes out a bit in that I, I always want to talk about semantics and definitions first. But really, really simply, geopolitics is an approach to understanding the world that basically surmises that geography is the most important factor in how nations and how states, how mature political communities behave. Um, that sounds really straightforward, but when you actually think about that for a second, um, it should problematize how that word is used when you're mostly reading it in a newspaper. So if you pick up the Wall Street Journal and they're 
writing something like geopolitics is affecting the semiconductor supply chain. That means absolutely nothing. That's garbage. Right. That's a right. that's a garbage line meant to like you know so that they don't have to actually sit down and write what's going on in that particular supply chain. Um, geopolitics is also not perfect. It is one tool in a toolbox that you need to understand what's going on in the world. Um, if you were using geopolitics, say, in the late 1990s to try and understand things that were going on in the world, wouldn't have worked really well because that was a very optimistic time. Um, the European Union was rising. American democracy was going to win. The Soviets were gone. People weren't behaving in zero-sum ways and competing over resources in quite the same way. Um, so geopolitics is really operative when the world gets competitive, when the world get, gets multipolar, when there's not one obvious or two obvious powers and you get all these competing actors and you have to figure out what are their interests? Why is somebody like Putin acting this way? Why is the United States acting this way? Those are the questions that geopolitics allows you to answer and get some clarity on. It's not a be-all, end-all, but it does at least allow you to get some ground truth on that particular question. And it's no more and no less than that. You know, it's, it's interesting to me because, um, as I say, we're so familiar with the word, all of us, and, and getting more familiar with it by the day. But it's it's always taken as a branch of politics. And so it's fascinating to hear you say it's the geo part that is actually the most important because I guess because that word is truncated as a prefix, then people truncate it in terms of its importance. But that geographical aspect is really so important. You know, I had a conversation recently with my friend Simon Hunt and we talked about the heartland theory of uh, Alfred McKinder. And people forget that, you know, geography was here long before politics and geography dictates politics to an enormous extent. It does, and, and I, I'm glad you said that too, because um, you know, geopolitics, you, you hear geopolitics and you think politics, but geopolitics doesn't aspire to be politics or political science. It aspires to be a social science. It aspires to try and right. understand how human communities actually interact with each other. And you mentioned Mackinder. Before there was Mackinder, there was a, a Swedish dude that nobody talks about named Rudolf Chilen who coined the word. He's the one who invented it in the late 1800s. And that's so important because geopolitics as a discipline, as an idea, really doesn't exist before then. It really happens when nation states are rising and starting to replace empires. And there's this whole new security, political, economic architecture to the world. And you have these social scientists who are sitting there saying, okay, all the old ways we understood how the Austro-Hungarian Empire is going to behave or what's happening with the emperor in China. All of our old ways of thinking about this don't work anymore. So when we look at the world, what do we see? Okay, we see that geography is affecting these states in the same way that an environment um, affects an organism. And they start building this theory on top of that. And not to go too far down a tangent, but one of the reasons I think geopolitics got lost and people don't talk about where it comes from and what it means is because the Nazis really liked this idea. They loved the idea that nations are just biological organisms, and if they have to expand, they have to expand. It's all amoral. And they co-opted it in a really crude and bastardized form. And if you read Nazi policy papers before they did all the terrible things they did, they're talking about geopolitics and, and using all those watchwords. And I think that's why, after World War II, um, nobody really talked about geopolitics for a generation because they were nervous about what the Nazis did to it. But then they were also obliquely referring to it because it was so obviously important and so obviously predictive and explanatory of things that were going on. Yeah, you know, another fascinating component of this is, is you know, we, we as humans have a tremendous recency bias. And uh, there are some wonderful quotes about people's understanding of history and, and you know, how, how few people really understand it and the problems that presents. 
But, you know, recency bias, we've lived for half a century in a unipolar world. That's not the norm. You know, that, that's really more of an exception in, in the truest sense, because the United States really has been uh, the global hegemon on its own, dominating for such a long time now. And we, we seem to be on the cusp of, if not a return to a multipolar world, which seems most likely to me, at least a struggle towards going back to that way. So talk a little bit, if you can, about how a normally functioning world works, whether the last 50, 60 years has been the exception and what it means to shift from that unipolar state back to a, a, a multipolar world. The snarky one-sentence answer to your question is that there's no such thing as a normal world, full stop. Right. Yes, that's um, fair enough. <laughs> I walked but, um, into that one. <laughs> no, but, but we all do, right? So, but Because um, you can imagine previous periods in history where the world was unipolar. When the Roman Empire was, was dominating the world, that was the norm. When the British Empire was dominating the world, that was the norm. Um, uh, then you have bipolar periods, the U.S.-Soviet Union conflict. That's an area of bipolarity. And then you have multipolar, uh, multipolar periods where everything is up for grabs. I would say in my own thinking, uh, and this is partly because I came from the George Friedman Stratford geopolitical futures background, that background really thinks that the it's still a unipolar world, that the United States is top dog, will be top dog, it's going through some rough patches and will come out stronger. Um, in the last four to five years, I've really done a 180 on that. I don't think that's true anymore at all. And I think it's fair to say we're already in a multipolar world. And I think one of the really interesting things is that the United States was one of the countries to predict this, knew it before anybody else. The Nixon administration, with its turn to China and all the things that Nixon was doing, he did horrible things domestically. But if you look at his foreign policy speeches, he talks about a multipolar world, that the United States is going to have to get ready for it um, and that it might already be here. And I think Nixon was just a couple decades too early. The United States had a couple more decades to run. A lot of the strategists didn't understand how weak the Soviet Union was and that you were going to get this weird interregnum where the United States was not going to have a challenger. And that's where we are. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you're right that we're I, not that we're even moving back to a multipolar world. We're in it. The United States is not top dog. It can't tell everybody what to do anymore. And countries like Russia, like China, are doing what they want to do. It's not perfect. The United States is still the top military power and still has incredible financial and economic power to bear. I'm not talking about the U.S. going into decline. Like, that's not it at all. It's just relative to other powers in the world. Some are getting stronger, some are getting weaker, and that's a much more dynamic geopolitical environment than we've had since before World War One. I. I think we're rewinding the clock to the late 1800s. Yeah, you know, it, it seems, given the fact that certainly through the Trump administration and now into the Biden administration, the U.S. has actually seemed like it wanted to relinquish a lot of its responsibilities as global hegemon as gently as it can, um, whether for domestic reasons or financial reasons or whatever it may be. But there, there seems to potentially have been a path to a smooth-ish transition to a genuinely multipolar world. I wonder if that is in fact possible or does the old adage of domestic politics trumping um, international politics ultimately portend perhaps problems given that there are in every one of the major um, contenders for the for, for these roles, significant domestic problems which will have to be either faced or distracted from. The U.S. has an identity crisis about this because yes, and you know, if you look at polls, you know, Americans want the United States to withdraw from foreign conflicts abroad. They don't want to be so involved, and yet. They think they're the best things in sliced bread. They think that American democracy is the obvious 
choice and that everybody should embrace it and that people that don't embrace it are evil or communist or any other pejoratives you want to throw in there. So you have these two ideas, not just in the American psyche, but in the foreign policy establishment going on at the same time. Yes, we want realism and pragmatism and to balance all of our resources, uh, but also Putin is a thug and she is a thug and all these people are terrible and they're evil and we have to oppose them on some kind of moral and ideological basis. That doesn't work. Um, and I think to get to that smooth path, um, that's one thing that has to resolve itself. It's not all on the United States to resolve it, but that identity crisis has to resolve itself. In terms of whether a smooth transition to a multi-world is possible, um, I've always been a bit of an optimist, which is ironic being in this business. Um, but yes, <laughs> it's certainly possible. Stop kidding. <laughs> it's certainly possible. Um, I think um, it was really depressing the way the world responded to COVID-19 because COVID-19 should have been the exact sort of thing that could have brought people together. The, I always go back to the 2008 financial crisis. When the 2008 financial crisis happened, the US and China were on the phone to each other immediately talking about what can we do to stabilize the world? Um, how can we make sure that things don't get too far out of hand? When you look at what happened with COVID, China was afraid of telling the world what was going on because they were afraid the U.S. was going to use it against them in the trade war. Um, they were right to be afraid because as soon as the U.S. knew something was going on, the Trump administration used that just to say, ah, see, we told you the Chinese are really bad. And it's just this never-ending um, problem. So I, I think the, um, the off-ramps to a rough multipolar world, we've lost most of them. They're not all gone. There are still, there's still climate change. There's still a pandemic. There are still major things happening that it actually... I think befits many countries to be more cooperative than it does to be competitive. Um, but unfortunately, the trend is certainly not in that direction, even if I think it is still possible for that sort of thing to emerge. You know, it's interesting. You, two words jumped out at me there when you talked at the beginning of that about this idea that Americans have that American democracy is is the best thing out there. And I, and I just wonder what American democracy is this day. I know what it was when I was a kid. I know what it was when I came to America and, and what it represented throughout my entire life, really. But I have to say, um, you know, and I love the country and the people, but I, what I see today is a pale imitation of that America. And the democracy within it is a pale imitation of what I understand to be American democracy. So you, you, what do you think is the state of American democracy? And is there a way to find a path back to the kind of system that, that the world so respected and so admired and, and really allowed America to build its position in the world? Let me start off by saying uh, it's impossible for me to be objective to answer that question. So let me take off my geopolitics yeah, that's, that's hat that's for fair. a second and say, okay, yeah, there, okay. there's a little, <laughs> okay. I'll, be as, I'll be as objective as I can here, but there will be a little bit of Jacob Shapiro's personal views in this, even if I'm going to try right. and, and edit most of them out. Um, I think you can take, again, an optimist or a pessimist's view on that. Um, if you look at the long scope of American history, um, you know, certainly the form of American democracy that existed in the early 1800s, while relative to the rest of the world was quite impressive, uh, would be considered reprehensible today. Um, yes. in the, in the late 1800s, we fought a civil war that was one of the most destructive, horrible, violent conflicts, um, Let's not say in world history, but it, it was pretty bad. Uh, and it happened to be the, the point where modern weaponry was meeting old tactics. So it, it was particularly bloody in an awful way. Um, the United States does this. It goes through these periods um, where the old system doesn't fit the current social reality in the country. And I think the genius of the United States is that it has designed a political system that can evolve 
without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, you know, so if you look at, at since the Civil War, um, I think there have been two real moments where this happened. There was the Gilded Age going into the Teddy Roosevelt administration. There was the Great Depression going into the FDR administration. You could throw Reagan in there too. I'd quibble yep. a little, but it's it's the same sort of transition. And in all those periods, you have exactly what we have today. You have a period where the system isn't working for everyone, where economic inequality is increasing, where minorities feel like, and rightfully so, feel like they've been shortchanged, where the majority feels like, yeah, but this has done great for everyone and you could be doing a whole lot worse where you came from, so why are you complaining? You get these really harsh um, disagreements. And in each of those scenarios that I'm talking about, what happens eventually, a, a political revolution at the ballot box happens and some leader or some party gets enough support that they can remake the system. That's what Teddy did with the progressives. That's what FDR did with the New Deal. It's what Reagan did as well. Um, so if you're an optimist, you think that the United States is heading towards that kind of moment and that honestly things haven't even gotten close to bad enough in the United States to do that. Because when you look at the um, the balance of power between between the Democrats and the Republicans, it's still fairly even. Everybody's preying on easy stuff because people aren't really um, are, aren't suffering the way that they did in the in the New Deal or before the New Deal, before the Gilded Age. So I think that's where we're headed. I'm optimistic sort of in the long term, but I think it's going to get a lot worse here in the short term. And the real test is whether American institutions, the American political framework can evolve. And if you're a pessimist, you look at what happened on January 6th, and that's the thing that should scare the crap out of you. Because that was, yeah. you know, aside from the riot, whatever, what was happening behind the scenes, what continues to happen in terms of the rhetoric, that's an assault on the institutions of the United States and on its political framework. And if you lose that, if that ossifies and somebody tries to, um, you know, maintain their power through illegitimate means or means that are not democratic, then it's game over. Then the United States is just just like everybody else. And maybe that's the way it's going to go. It's been a really good and interesting experiment for 150 years. So I'm optimistic, but also sober, if if that makes sense. Yeah, no, look, it does. And I think if we, if we bring these two points together now, it, it kind of brings everything up to date because what we have, as you say, is 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 a, a potentially multipolar world. Maybe we're in it already. We know who the two main actors are who are jockeying for a seat at the top table. And we're also seeing, as you said, the ability of foreign actors to weaken the United States through interference with um, elections, through social media, through you know, propaganda, through all kinds of ways that technology is enabled. So let's kind of pick those two countries off one by one. And, and, and I guess it makes sense. Ordinarily, you'd probably start with China with this, but given what's going on in the world at the moment, it seems to make more sense to, to start with Russia. Mm. Um, and, and you know, it, 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 you almost don't want to say, I want to start with Russia. You want to say, I want to start with Putin, because he's, he's almost bigger than the country at the moment. He's everybody's bogeyman. You know, I wrote a piece about him uh, not that long ago, talking about how the way he's portrayed in Western media, there is a definite reason for that. When you hear him speak or you watch him speak, he is a very, very competent leader. He's a master tactician. And right now he seems to be playing you know, against the junior varsity team in terms of the leaders of the major Western powers and running rings around them. So, so let's talk a little bit about Russia, where they are, what they want, um, whether what Putin wants and what Russia wants are aligned. Just give us a general sense of, of, of Russia as it stands right now in the world community. Yeah, I want to say one brief thing before we dive into Russia, which is that as we discuss a multipolar world, don't think of it in terms as this is a competition for who gets to be top dog. 
um, because it's not it's not Game of Thrones. Like it's not all right. get your popcorn out and <laughs> right. see who's going to be top dog. Um, right. and, and that's not how a lot of these countries are thinking. Like I guarantee you, Putin, Xi Jinping, Erdogan, they're not sitting there thinking, "I want to be." on the Iron Throne, ruling everything. I, I That's agree. not what they want. Yeah. What they want is their own independent sphere of influence. And they want everybody else to accept their sphere of influence. So we'll probably talk about China later, um, and that might surprise people. But, let's, but let, let's start with Russia, because that's all Putin really wants here. He wants to establish Russia's sphere of influence. And he, from his perspective, the Russian perspective, that sphere of influence has been slowly chipped away at um, since 1991. And he doesn't understand, or I shouldn't say he doesn't understand why. I'm sure he understands why. But he looks at the West and says, look, like if everything you say is true, why are you building up military installations on all of my borders? Why are you waging political influence campaigns and telling people in countries that don't matter to you what kind of regimes they should have? This is Russia's backyard. Um, you know, have some respect. Um, I think that's the perspective there. Uh, and Putin is clever. Um, he, he's certainly a very skilled leader, but I would also say he's playing an extremely weak hand. So he's playing the game well, but he also has a very weak hand and he has to play the game well because if Russia doesn't play the game well, um, it's a really difficult position for Russia. And we saw this happen with just as Russia is increasing all this pressure on Ukraine. It's got everybody talking about Ukraine. It's got the Americans coming and discussing things with them. It's got NATO freaking out. What happens? On the complete opposite side of its border, completely unexpected, Kazakhstan goes nuts. Um, was that just Kazakhstan going nuts? The Russians allege there are foreign influences there. So were foreign influences um, tying that up? If you read Russian media today, they were talking about how Turkey was creating problems now in the Caucasus in response to what was happening in Kazakhstan because the Turks think that their Central Asian heritage means that that's their fiefdom and their sphere of influence, all this kind of stuff going on. Um, so Russia's playing an extremely weak hand. Um, when I've talked to some Russian analysts um, from Valdai or from Megimo and stuff like that, and I had one on my podcast recently, I was a little scared, though, because um, they didn't dismiss all this um, this recent troop buildup as just to scare um, the West. Um, they talked about how it even took some people in Moscow, secure, like geopolitical analysts who do this in Moscow for a living, um, were taken by surprise by the timing of what Russia was doing. So I think there's a couple potential explanations. I think um, it's possible that the U.S. was sending some kind of support or some kind of military equipment to Ukraine that the Russians just really didn't like, and they're reacting that way. Um, that's one possibility. Um, a second possibility, I think this is the more likely one, is that Putin kind of realizes that he's more powerful now and Russia is more powerful now than they're ever going to be. This is it. Demographically, they're a basket case. If if you if you listen to Putin's um, speeches regularly, you know that he cares a lot more about the low Russian birth rate than just about any other geopolitical issue. It's the fact yeah, that you yeah. know, the Russian population is shrinking is to him the most existential problem. Uh, but energy prices are high. The, the Europeans are trying to transition away, but they still get 50% of their natural gas from Russia. They still get a quarter of their oil from Russia. Uh, I think he sees that the United States is weak. I also have heard from Russian analysts that they think that um, Biden is the right person to make a deal with. Um, they think that he's a one-term president. They think that his anti-Russian stance in previous years actually allows him a sort of gravitas to make a deal with Russia that won't be politically catastrophic. So I think when you put all those things together, I think Russia feels threatened. It feels like it's maximizing its power right this moment. And so best case scenario, they get NATO in the United States to give up some political concessions that Putin can claim victory with. And worst case scenario, uh, they get to embarrass the United States again and show these Eastern European countries what a U.S. security guarantee looks like because the U.S. isn't going to do anything but sanctions. 
Um, and it'll be a, it'll be a rough, it'll be kind of a rough couple months here or a rough couple of years for U S Russia relations. Let, let me play devil's advocate for a second. Cause you know, as I watch this unfold, I, I'm, I'm curious as to how it's portrayed in the media. And, and I look at what's happening in Ukraine. I look at the demands that Putin made and I can't help but thinking if I'm trying to be objective about it, that what he's asking for is really not an awful lot different to what the US was demanding in 1962 in the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, there are some very, very strong parallels here. With the technology available today, NATO does not need missiles in Ukraine. They don't need them there, right? It's not like they've only got a 50-mile range anymore. So, you know, when I look at it, it's being painted as, you know, Putin being Putin and being a thug and threatening Ukraine, all this kind of stuff. But I look at his demands and I'm like, you know, Apart from saving political face, it would be very easy to look at this and go, yeah, you know what? We don't need a base in Ukraine and de-escalate this situation really quite easily. Now, as I say, I'm being devil's advocate and I'm simplifying that, but but what are your thoughts on that? Uh, This goes back to the US identity crisis because if you were just straight realpolitik, geopolitical interests, um, the United States would say, sure, we'd like some concessions on this, that, or other issue that we're going to trade, but that sounds good. And and I think your point is is doubly true because um, not only is Putin asking for things that the United States would ask for in its own backyard, Putin is asking for things that already exist. He's asking for no, you know, advanced missiles in Ukraine, and he's asking for NATO to guarantee that Ukraine won't join NATO. There are no missiles in Ukraine, and the U.S. doesn't have any plans to put them there, as far as I know. And NATO doesn't want Ukraine in the alliance. They don't want to have to go defend Ukraine. What they don't want to do is they don't want to be seen saying the Russians made an ultimatum and told us who we're allowed to have in our club. That's the the issue that NATO's like, well, you you can't tell us what to do, but we have to have this quid pro quo where we're not going to defend Ukraine, but you're not going to force us to to look like idiots because we say all these things about how we're going to protect Ukrainian democracy, even though we're not really going to. And, and that gets to the crux of the timing of this and why I think it's an open question of what Putin's real motives are, because he doesn't have to do this right now. He mostly, yeah. at least as far as I can tell, and there might be stuff going on on the ground there or behind closed doors that aren't available to guys like you and me. But at least as far as I can tell, he has most of what he's already asking for. He's just asking for it to be formalized, to put it a different way. He's asking the U.S. to admit, this is a multipolar world. This is my backyard. Say that this is my backyard or I'm going to do something. By the way, I don't think do something is going to be invade Ukraine. Like maybe it'll be a small thing, but they have, what, 100,000 troops that they're massing at the borders? That's not enough to march to Kiev. And and most of Western Ukraine is very hostile to Russia anyway. If you read um, what the warnings are coming out of Moscow right now, they're talking about military technical responses. They're talking about, um, the funny one today was, if the West is going to do containment, we're going to do counter containment. Um, I, I think you're looking at, I, I really think you're looking at energy prices. If, if the Russians don't feel like they're getting the respect that they want or the um, desired political end that they want out of this, I assume that they will use natural gas and oil to try and instill some real pain and let the Europeans and Americans know, hey, you're going you're gonna to have consequences if you come past our red lines. And, and that's kind of where I see the thing going if things don't go well. But, you know, they're still talking. They're still dialoguing as, as, as long as there are meetings scheduled and they're still talking like um, we're at least in range of the deal that you're talking about, which is, OK, like we're not going to do this and you're not going to do this. Can we please go back to our corners? Yeah, I mean, the last ten years has not been good for anyone drawing red lines. Unfortunately, it's been it's been it's been a flawed strategy. Um, but look, look, what what do you think um, 
Putin's, let's call it success in Crimea, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll brand it a success because he got what he wanted and he really kind of got away with one there. Does that make this situation more dangerous or, or less dangerous, do you think? So Crimea happens as a result of the 2014 Ukrainian Revolution. And the 2014 right. Ukrainian Revolution was an unmitigated disaster and intelligence failure for Russia. They didn't see it coming. They didn't, ex um, they didn't expect it. Um, how things just went down with Kazakhstan was how Ukraine in 2014, from the Russian perspective, right. should right. have happened. They should have had a feeling for what was going on when something happened. Deploy a few paratroopers, crack a few skulls, have the armored personnel carriers down the capital install a new prime minister that we like, and then we go home. That's how 2014 should have worked. It didn't. Um, and I think that's one of the part, that's one, of, that's really the moment I think where Russia um, and Putin in particular uh, gets really worried about national security. So they, they managed to snatch some victory from the jaws of defeat by saying, okay, if Ukraine is really on the board and there is a Western friendly government in Kiev, there are certain things we can't allow. One of which is Crimea can't be under the control of that government. We're gonna have to go in and make sure we have Crimea. We're gonna need some kind of base in Eastern Ukraine so that we can mess around and cause divisions um, in Europe itself and 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 really show, you, show this Western friendly government Ukraine that you're not really in charge here. Like we're here in the East and we're gonna be able to make your life very, very difficult. So again, that's why I say Putin is playing a weak hand and he's playing it extremely well. And one of the reasons I think it looks like he's running circles around some of these other leaders is because they're all playing strong hands. They don't have to be particularly skilled at this because if something happens in Ukraine, yes, many people in the foreign policy establishment will write very angry op-eds in newspapers and talk about how all sorts of terrible things are happening. And then they'll go and have a cheeseburger at McDonald's and nothing's going to change for them. Whereas for Ukraine, everything's going to change. And if, and if Russia screws this up, Putin might not be in office in a year because people will smell weakness and he won't be able to stay on top of the game. Um, so yeah, again, it's, it's, it's strength out of a position of weakness. And I think because Russia needs it more than anybody else does, that's who I would bet on in this particular conflict. Yeah, I mean, look, for me, I'd always much rather back the strong player with a weak hand than the bad player with a strong hand. And, and that, mm. unfortunately, everywhere I look around the West, you know, now Merkel's gone. I don't see anybody who is a, is a competent player on the, on the global political scene. But when you talk about the weak hand that, that Russia has, uh, if you game that out, how would it be possible for him to come out of this on on the wrong side of it? Do you think what what kind of missteps might he make that could end up with him actually ending up getting shown up for having the bad hand he has? Well, first, uh, you said that there are no leaders in the West, but um, Macron is very smart. I, I don't know if he's going to last. I don't know if he has the juice. I don't know if France has the juice. But when you just look at somebody who's thinking about these things, Macron is thinking about them, and he says the right things. Um, the, the rest of, of the West, I would agree with you. You're facing weak leaders who are, are really not on the ball. Um, but I'm, I'm impressed with, with Macron in general with just the way he thinks about this stuff. Not necessarily with okay. his policies and political skills, but he's thinking kind of the right way. F look, failure for Putin um, is um, – it, it's really hard for him, I guess, to fail here because I don't see Europe and the United States intervening. Um, I think what failure looks like is that he's underestimating the extent to which the Russian economy can handle the backlash. So let's say he doesn't get any of the political concessions that he wants out of NATO and the United States, and he has to follow through on his threat. So whether that's oil prices or a limited military incursion in Ukraine, whatever, and the Russian economy gets hit with 
uh, crippling U.S. sanctions and we're disconnecting them from SWIFT and we're going to try and embargo their oil, whatever the, the situation is. Um, Russia is saying right now, hey, we've been preparing for this since 2014. We've built up our foreign exchange reserves. Uh, we've already been de-dollarizing the economy. Um, this is going to be tough for Russians, but we can handle it right now. And that's what all yeah. the sacrifices of the last seven to eight years have been about. Um, failure for Putin is if Russia can't handle it. Um, if okay. the economic consequences that the West can impose make life so bad, either for the oligarchs and the, the businessmen who really run Russia from a money perspective behind the scenes, or you know, is enough to get Russians in the streets not caring anymore about whose skulls are going to get cracked because their lives on a daily basis are getting so bad. Um, that, I think, is the the real danger point for Putin. Um, if he's misunderstood, if he's under if he's underestimating the strength of the Russian economy and the West is able to call his bluff, then he's in trouble. Um, but, you know, the way energy prices are right now and the way the world is, I mean, we, the world really can't afford to lose Russia as a major energy producer right now. Um, no. It just can't, especially with, with where inflation is. So that's why I say I, I think Putin knows, like, now's the time if he's ever going to try to do anything. Well, yeah, yeah, you're making this easy for me because you just led me perfectly onto the next part that I want to talk about, and that's that southern border with Kazakhstan and what we've seen happen in Kazakhstan. You know, you, as I say, you 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 cut your teeth on the Arab Spring, and there again, it wasn't energy prices, but it was the other basic staple. It was food prices that that really inflamed that situation and and lit the spark. We've seen that in Kazakhstan now. Um, Putting aside any political meddling on the part of, of Western governments trying to distract Putin or, or, or cause him a headache on another border, you know, the fact that that did happen so quickly and did happen immediately after that increase in fuel prices for a country which, let's face it, if anyone is in a position to offer heavily subsidised fuel prices, it's Kazakhstan, right? Yeah. But what was it that led to that, you think? Why did it catch everybody by surprise? It wasn't just Putin. It was this caught everybody by surprise. Yeah, and, and maybe we bookmark this and come back to it. I think food prices is the biggest geopolitical risk of the year yeah. or the next year ahead, and maybe we can come back to that. And you're right, from the Arab Spring to the French Revolution and almost every major political conflict it's always between, food, yeah. it usually starts, you know, that's not the cause, but like that's usually the match that strikes the flame. Um, in terms of Kazakhstan, um, again, this is actually one of those situations where if, if experts are telling you they know what's going on, they don't. Um, it's not quite <laughs> like Nor it's not quite like North Korea and Iran, which are true black boxes. But this is an old Soviet-style dictatorship. Um, not a lot of people have a lot of insight into what's going on on the ground there. That doesn't mean we can't use geopolitics to understand some of what's going on, but there is a level of opaqueness to internal Kazakh politics that we're just going to have to sort of put out there at front. Um, and I, and the reason I say that is because. Um, aside from fuel prices and food prices and all these things, Kazakhstan is also in the midst of a pretty major political transition. Um, Nazarbayev was the only president that Kazakhstan's had since the end of the Cold War. He stepped down in 2019, um, put in his hand-picked successor, and then went to go run this, this security council, which is basically allowed to do whatever he wants behind the scenes. And he has his puppet master doing stuff as president. His puppet master, by the way, this Tokayev guy, like, went to school in Moscow, worked in Soviet embassies. Like nice. he's, he's an old apparatchik. Um, so I'm wondering if, and Nazarbayev now, he's, he's in his 80s. I'm wondering if he's not well. I'm wondering if he's lost his grip. I'm wondering if his successor after a couple of years in office has begun to develop his own power bases and didn't need Nazarbayev anymore. Um, that's kind of, I think when you get these kind of price dislocations and these bottom-up issues combined with that level of political transition and maybe the regime is not as whole um, as it as it should be. I think that's maybe where you get some of this. Um, 
uh, I'd also point out like the Kazakhstan situation seems to be largely resolved. Um, it doesn't seem like it's going to bleed into something. They've managed to put in a new premier. They cracked skulls. The Russians are already talking about withdrawing. So they may not have been prepared for this exact moment, like this fuel issue being the thing that was going to strike things off. Um, but I think they were prepared in general to respond in case something happened in Kazakhstan. Um, we just saw it in Belarus too. I mean, it's it's the same kind of playbook and Kazakhstan has gone much better than Belarus did from the from the Russian perspective. So that's my best read on it. And I'm really curious, you know, where is Nazarbayev? Where's his family? What does that Kazakh ruling structure look like? Um, because if he's going away, you know, then things are going to change in Kazakhstan. And it's going to be about whether Russia feels comfortable with whoever they are, man they managed to put into power there going forward. You, you put a bookmark in that. So let's not take the risk that we forget to come back to it. Let's come back to it now, because as you said, food prices are normally the spark that lights these fires. And again, you know, from a geopolitical standpoint, there's nothing more important than keeping the people fed. Mm -hmm. And we are seeing strong inflationary policies right around the world. We're seeing governments in insane amounts of debt, unable to really pull the kind of levers they need to quell this thing without causing problems elsewhere. You know, have we have we finally reached, you think, that point where uh, all the can kicking that we've seen in the last 20 years is going to be ultimately unsuccessful and, and pulled apart simply because of that one thing, that ultimately this was always going to end up in inflation somewhere, somehow. It's happening in the basic necessities of life, and that's the fastest way for this to get out of hand. No, I think there's plenty of room to kick the can more down the road. Um, I think okay. I, I think there's enough capital out there to buy time, but that's not a global answer. Um, I think some countries are going to be right. able to buy time better than other countries. And for some countries, um, rises, you know, if they're particularly exposed to energy prices, and let's say we just saw this with China and India, when the price of coal spikes because nobody's producing coal anymore and they still rely on coal for a large percentage of their electricity generation and suddenly they can't get coal, well, suddenly factories are shutting down in China and India is going to run out of coal in three days and things can get very bad. So I think you're going to see those types of dislocations at the global level, especially in the West. Yeah, I, I think they can kick the can down the road a little bit more. But I'm particularly worried about food prices this year because I think there's a mismatch between what people think is going to happen and what's actually happening. Uh, and we're already starting to see this play out. And the, the main concern for me is that you've got this ongoing drought in both the United States and in South America. Just this week, Paraguay said that it was going to harvest like 40% less soybeans than they thought they were going to. Brazil is revising projections down from everything from coffee to corn. Same is true of Argentina. If you look at a, a drought map of the United States right now, it's a disaster. So when you start revising those numbers down and you're already at a point where food prices are at the highest they've been in 10 years, I start to get nervous. Now, in places like the United States or the UK, or you know, things will be hard. We're going to be paying more for things, and maybe there will be unavailability at grocery stores. But I don't think we're going to. It's not going to fundamentally challenge things. But when you look around the world at places like Kazakhstan, Ethiopia, which just went through a civil war, which was probably caused by a locust infestation that endangered food supply there. South Africa had its protests, you know, last July. Food prices went up in the weeks before that. In those parts of the developing world where food security and food supply is not just about I'm paying more for food, but I'm not eating. They don't have as much room to kick the can down the road. And they're going to face, I think, real political stability out of that. So that's the the most important leading indicator of sort of political instability, at the geopolitical level that I care about. Um, and it's flashing red on a number of different dials for me right now. Well, there's no 
country on earth probably that's that's uh, in more peril if food prices get out of control than China. You know, you could argue that that is that is in terms of global stability. If we get rampant inflation and food prices in China, that's a big problem for everybody, not just the Chinese. And 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 that brings us back to this multipolar situation. We have China sitting there who you know, seem to have kind of slipped back a little bit in terms of the visibility that the threat they carry has in, particularly in Western media, Russia's kind of replaced them as as the person we all need to watch out for. But what's your take on China? Because obviously they are seeing inflationary pressure on food. They are seeing skirmishes on their borders now. And they are also in the frame for the, the Taiwan situation. Give us a, a rundown on the place that China finds themselves and then we'll kind of pick apart what they might be in a position to do. Yeah. And we could talk about this probably for five hours just by itself. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I think there's, I think people fundamentally misunderstand China, especially in Western media. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to, to pick that a little bit apart um, as well. Um, you're right that rising food prices is really bad for China and they're very vulnerable to it. Um, they know that and they've known that for yeah. years. If you go back sure. even five years, they were putting out white papers talking about not just ensuring food supply, but about how um, food security was one of the most important to their geopolitics kind of full stop. And they have been um, doing everything they can to boost agricultural yields, to import as much as they can so that they have reserves of grains through tough times, all that sort of stuff. They've been doing that. Um, um, that's not to say they're they're completely immune. Um, and especially if you get some of these businessmen in China on the coast who have become very wealthy, who suddenly they're not going to be able to buy the sorts of food stuff that they thought they were going to. You know, they made it out of poverty so that they could buy things like meat whenever they wanted. And you're going to tell them that it's more expensive or they can't get it. There's going to be political dislocation to that. But um, ironically, like China is a little better set up when it comes to food security than a country like India, which is only just sort of waking up to the fact that, oh, things might not be so good. We don't have a national strategy going back five years where we've been planning for some kind of cataclysmic disaster. So that's just on the food thing. But in terms of China in general, I'm pretty bullish on China, to be honest. One of the things I always bring up with China is that um, Chinese history goes in cycles. It's actually pretty easy to look at the cycles. And you have these um, periods where a central power dominates the country and brings it together and is very strong. And then at the end of a cycle, things start to come apart. And the emperor has no clothes and can't control all the disparate regions in China. And they get challenged and it becomes war, you know, warring states or, war, or gangs running around or Chinese civil war, which we saw in the 20th century. I bring that up to say... The Chinese Communist Party does not look like it's losing power to me. It looks like it's gaining power. It looks like it's centralizing power. So this doesn't, to me, look like a Chinese dynasty that is at the end of its game. It looks to me like it's in the beginning to middle of its game. And I think that um, Xi Jinping and the, and the Chinese government know um, that their economy is a little bit of a Ponzi scheme. And if, if they're going to make it in this land of multipolar great power um, competition, that has to change. They're going to have to make some hard reforms and hard sacrifices so that that economy can actually function and not get kicked over by a massive debt crisis or whatever else is going to happen to them. They also, I think, um, learn the lessons of the Mao period. This is not about them building up a great wall around themselves and they're just going to isolate themselves from the rest of the world. They really want to become the economic center of gravity of the world. I don't think they want to become the military security center of gravity in the world. I think they want Taiwan, maybe a couple other things, and then they'd be happy. But I think economically, they see that their economy can really be the engine for the world and that they can derive a great deal of benefit from it if they can figure out these problems in their domestic economy. So I think that's what the next couple of years are going to be like for China. I actually think on the foreign policy level, they're going to be 
you know, they might send their wolf warriors around and, and, and beat their chests and be very aggressive with the things that they say. And they'll be very performative and showing that they're a great power rising. But the biggest things happening in China right now are the boring things like, okay, well, what is this new regulatory policy that the government just put out? And is it actually going to implement this policy? Is it not just going to be a sheet of paper like it has been for decades in China? Are they actually going to let these property developers fail? And if they let property developers fail, are the people going to rise up in the streets or are they going to blame the property developers for doing irresponsible speculation and for violating all these regulatory controls that the Chinese government is trying to pass through? That's why I think China is fascinating. I think they're trying to, on the fly, switch from this export-fueled, communist Ponzi scheme-esque economy to know, okay, we've amassed all this wealth. We have all this capacity, all this technology. Let's try and flip the switch. Let's try and actually redistribute this wealth to the Chinese. Let's try and become um, an importer rather than just an exporter. And I, I think that's what the next couple of years about China is going to be about. And I'm fairly, I'm fairly bullish that they can do that. Well, you know, look, it's interesting. If, if you're a state actor looking to figure out a way to make the population blame the property developers instead of the party, having the ability to arbitrarily execute the property developers it seems to be a pretty useful tool in terms of guiding public opinion. But um, you know, the, the big question about China, I guess, uh, certainly in the last uh, 18 months or so, has been the Taiwan question. And I've spoken to really smart people who, who understand this stuff a lot better than me. You know, from my time in Asia, I have what I think is a pretty decent understanding of it. But I've still heard very, very credible people say it's a given they're going to try and take Taiwan and there's no chance in hell they're going to take Taiwan. And, you know, I, it, it's a really tough one for me to call. I, I'm, I'm just curious to get your thoughts on it because, uh, as I said, I, I've, I, I could be convinced of either case at this point. They want Taiwan. They, oh, they yeah, that, that, they, there's they, no doubt. Yeah, They absolutely want Taiwan. And at some point, they will get Taiwan. The question is when. Is that 80 years from now or is that they're going to use their military to you know, launch an amphibious invasion and take over? Um, I, I think looking at how they dealt with Hong Kong is really instructive um, yeah. because you know, in the 1980s, the UK didn't want to give up Hong Kong. But what China did in the prevailing decades was they basically made it impossible for the UK to manage Hong Kong. And when Thatcher said, actually, we'd like to renew our lease here in Hong Kong and have it for another 100 years, the Chinese government was able to say, okay, well, we'll cut off the water and we'll cut off all the food going in and good luck governing your territory. Uh, we, we would like it now. Like this has gone on long enough. And she had to fold. And there was that peaceful transition. We can talk about what's been happening in Hong Kong in the last couple of years if you want. But they, they retook Hong Kong without anybody having to fire a shot. Um, it's going to be a lot more difficult with Taiwan because Taiwan is much further away. It's much larger. And people are afraid of China now in a way that they weren't when they were reabsorbing yeah, Hong Kong point. thinking that way. So it's going to be a lot more difficult, but it's going to be the same playbook. I don't see the Chinese risking a cross-strait invasion, which would be incredibly costly, um, which would really isolate them, I think, from the rest of the world. They don't want that. They want to embed themselves in the rest of the world. It would kill a lot of the plans they have to generate the capital they need to pull off this massive economic transition. So I think it's the Hong Kong playbook. I think they are going to certainly build up their military strength. They want to show you that they are getting stronger and that they can threaten that and they can make you feel uncomfortable. But long term, they want to create conditions such that Taiwan's reabsorption is inevitable to where nobody could even try to resist China, even if they wanted to. Um, so 10, 20, 30 years down the road, 
Um, that's probably what they're trying to do. If China is having to use military force to take over Taiwan, something's gone very wrong from Beijing's perspective. I think that's the worst case scenario. And that means you know, that they feel threatened in some fundamental way that they have to take a very big risk in trying to attack something that it is by no means assured they're going to be able to get. Because it's not just a U.S.-China thing here. First of all, Taiwan has a military of its own. It's been armed to the teeth by the United States for decades. The Japanese are very nervous and are throwing money at their military. They've warned that they're going to protect Taiwan. The Australians are there. South Koreans are there. And also, Indonesia, Malaysia, all these other countries that surround China, they don't want to see China just waltz into countries and take them over either. So I think they're trying right now and they will continue to try. I don't think they want to use force to get it. And they're going to try economically and politically to isolate Taiwan until nobody cares anymore. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, there's always this fundamental mismatch in terms of an acceptable time frame between China and and the rest of the world. You know, we we look at the coverage in Western media and it's breathless in terms of this this is going to happen. They want Taiwan, and up to that point, the Western media is absolutely right. But they then think that because they want Taiwan, the Chinese will be forced to do something about it in the in the here and now, rather than as you say, wait twenty thirty years, which they are more than likely to be willing to do. You know, they, they waited 25 years before they started turning the screws on Hong Kong. Yeah, I, I don't want to be too glib about it, but also- No, no, sure. We, no, but, but look who's doing the fear-mongering about Taiwan. It's usually military officials or folks who have mm-hmm. an interest in, in, in making sure that defense spending is going up and making sure that military budgets aren't cut. Um, and I'm not saying, and I say I don't want to be too glib because I'm not saying that countries and military officials and all these people shouldn't be preparing for eventualities and creating concrete plans. I'm just saying when you have, you know, U.S. admirals going out there and saying, yeah, China's going to try to invade Taiwan in the next three years. I mean, maybe I don't know anything and maybe I'm completely wrong. And if they do, I will come on your podcast again and say, mea culpa, I was an idiot. It won't be the first time I was wrong about something. But I look at that and it doesn't comport with anything I understand about China's history, about the things that it's saying internally are about the way that it's been executing its strategy. That just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm inclined to agree. Well, let, let's let's stick with China and talk about Hong Kong and, and talk about what's happening there and what the ultimate end game is. Because, you know, we've, we've, what's happened in Hong Kong has happened, I think, remarkably quickly. Um, you know, the, the kind of, it, it's devolved in a way that really caught me by surprise. There was no way in 97 that I thought the Chinese would stick to their word for 50 years uh, as, as they agreed with, with Margaret Thatcher. I didn't think that was a remote possibility. But for, to see what's happened happen so fast, it's almost as if they, again, you know, kind of saw a position where we've bided our time for almost a quarter of a century, but now we can turn the screws and make this thing happen much faster. And again, you know, they've largely gotten away with it. We, we, we had a, a few months in Western media where, it was, you know, free Hong Kong. And, you know, now it seems to me that it's only my buddy Carl Bass who's still actually banging the drum and talking about this in the negative. So talk a little bit about, um, for the people that don't quite understand, what China have done in Hong Kong, what all the fuss is about, and what happens from here. So the way that the compromise worked with the, which, which you alluded to, that for 50 years, there was basically going to be one country, but two systems. So Hong Kong was going to allow it to function independently on its own, and it was going to be part of China. And that was good for China, because Hong Kong basically became the center of capital, foreign capital, that was able to come in and out of the Chinese mainland. It was very hard to get into the Chinese mainland back then, but Hong Kong had more mature capital markets and was able to act as this go-between, which is why I think people talk, I, I obviously wasn't there for it, um, but I watched a lot of films from that you know period. And I think one of the reasons Hong Kong has this 
nostalgia to it was because for a period of time, it was this meeting point between the West and between China where um, it wasn't about geopolitics and it wasn't about ideology. It was just about people coming in and making money and, and, and Hong Kong was sort of allowed to have its own separate system that way. What's happening in a nutshell is that um, China's making Hong Kong a Chinese city, just like any other. They've exhausted the need that they had for Hong Kong as that um, place of capital because everybody from Goldman Sachs and and you know everybody on down wants to invest in China. And China can now say, okay, well then come through Shanghai or come through these other special economic zones that we need. We don't need to preserve this special status for Hong Kong in terms of its political autonomy. And by the way, as we're doing this major economic transition and as the party is trying to strengthen itself, not good to have this thorn in our side where maybe a foreign power could come in and influence things politically in a way that could eventually spread to the mainland and threaten the Chinese Communist Party. I think that's how the thinking went in China with regards to Hong Kong. Um, in terms of what they did, I mean, they've basically neutered um, Hong Kong's independence and autonomy. They're saying all the rules or most of the rules that apply um, in China are going to apply in Hong Kong. Um, they're going to arrest people in Hong Kong and bring them for Chinese justice if they feel like it. Um, I think one of the things to point out about Hong Kong, and again, I'm not speaking here about my my personal positions about this. If any listeners want to hear my personal positions about the Chinese, buy me a beer sometime. I'll, I'll just allude to it here and say I'm the grandson of Holocaust survivors, what's happening to the Uyghurs. Like, I, I, I can't even like use the words to talk about how much it riles me. So like, Personally, that's where I am. Like when, when you hear me talking about China strategically, I'm actually trying to be even more amoral yeah. and apolitical because I know I have some stuff um, in sure. there from an ideological perspective. But if you look at what they did in Hong Kong, they didn't really kill anyone. I mean, yeah, they threatened. They, they, they took pictures of the police forces and things like that, but they weren't rolling tanks through. They weren't cutting off the internet. They basically just said, okay, we told you it was going to be 50 years. It's actually going to be more like 30, 40, whatever it is. And now you're going to play by our rules. One of the interesting things that happened that around the same time, the Indians were sending tanks into Kashmir and cutting off the internet and destroying Kashmir's autonomy. You hear nobody talking about you know, India doing that to Kashmir and upsetting an yeah, extremely, extremely unbalanced geopolitical situation where Pakistan has evolved to nuclear powers who are not supposed to be nuclear powers or involved, et cetera. So I kind of glaze over with the ideological parts of Hong Kong. I'm sure it was beautiful when it was there, but that time has passed. And for better, for worse, you know, whatever your political proclivities are, you know, the West signed it over to China and it's China city now. They get to do with it what they want. If sovereignty means anything to you, the Chinese government gets to do what it wants to do. And if you really care that much, okay. So don't trade with them or don't invest with them or or go elsewhere. The rest of it, I think, is all window dressing and virtue signaling. And I don't have a lot of time for that. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you on that. Well, let, let me ask you um, one more one more subject I'd love to talk to you about, and that's um, cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency's place as a geopolitical asset, uh, impediment. I, I'm fascinated to see what you think the emergence of cryptocurrencies means and how it might change geopolitics potentially. It's a great question. And it's, it's, it's also a fun question because I feel like most of us are, are learning this on the fly together. So like, yeah. um, uh, it's, it's not like any one person is more of an expert than the other. It's just about have you rolled up your sleeves and read all the things that are happening in the last couple of years? And do you understand what's going on? Um, and some geopolitical experts don't care and you know, just give you the same old, no, governments are going to control everything in the dollar, blah, blah, blah. And some go the complete other way. They're going to be total crypto libertarians and say it's going to threaten everything. When I look at crypto, there's two main things going on. There's one, how it's moving in Western markets and how folks are making money off of it. Uh, and that's sort of the least interesting aspect to me. 
the more interesting aspect to me is not where crypto is being traded as an asset, but where it's actually being used as a currency. Um, so I'm looking at places like El Salvador, places like Turkey with the Turkish lira exploding right now. You've seen big inflows into cryptocurrency from Turks. Um, uh, Colombia is another country in some of their political instability. You saw major inflows into crypto there. Um, Ethiopia is a really interesting test case too. Cardano, the guys behind um, the ADA currency um, before uh -huh. the, the Ethiopian civil war kicked off, they decided they wanted to use a blockchain thing to help create a national ID system in Ethiopia. They obviously didn't talk to a geopolitical strategist who could have told them you were going to be in a morally kind of questionable land and helping that government. But, you know, people uh, people make mistakes. They can call geopolitical strategists now maybe when they realize what's going on. Anyway, but th that's a tangent we can save for another time. My point is, the real question for me is whether cryptocurrency is going to be used in some of these developing countries around the fringe where they don't have a stable national currency of their own. And for geopolitical reasons or for economic reasons, they don't want to be dependent on the dollar or any of the other big global reserve currencies that they might otherwise go into. And are they actually going to start using cryptocurrency to buy a carton of milk? Or are they actually going to start using cryptocurrency to, to get around paying taxes? And are their governments going to have to figure out, hold on, we're not getting any tax revenue now because we're not actually controlling our economy anymore. That I think is the most interesting thing to watch with cryptocurrency. And I honestly don't have a good answer for you. Um, I don't think it's going to be Bitcoin. It doesn't seem to me that Bitcoin has the things that it needs to function as a currency. It seems to me that Bitcoin was sort of the proof of concept um, and that all these altcoins out here that are trying to do that particular thing about, you know, making sure that the unbanked have access to financial services and making it easy um, to trade cryptocurrency and use cryptocurrency in that way. Um, that's the really interesting thing to watch. And that's why um, if you're interested in cryptocurrency and geopolitics, you're watching Turkey, you're watching El Salvador, you're watching whether cryptocurrency bans in China and Nigeria are going to hold. You're watching Iran, which you know has to has sometimes has its power system shut down because so many people there are using power to mine Bitcoin, so they can't warm their houses in the in the winter. Those are the places where I'm really curious to see if you're if we're going to see widespread adoption of cryptocurrency, and if we are, yeah, it's a, it's a geopolitical game changer, um, and if not. It'll just be a speculative asset for people to trade, just like any other speculative asset that they trade. Yeah, you, know, you talk about Turkey there, and uh, you know, I, I saw a I saw a fantastic plea from Erdogan the other day to ask the Turkish people to sell their gold and and buy lira as a as a patriotic gesture. Which, uh, I mean, if anybody in Turkey took him up on that, God bless them. But I, I doubt anybody did. But it it does bring us back to to one last point of conversation, and that is Turkey. Because um, you know it's at the it's at the crossroads of Europe and Asia. It's had all kinds of problems in recent years. It's come up with. I mean, we talk about you know uh, we talk about strange monetary policy being used in places like Japan, but the uh, the monetary policy being used in Turkey is a whole different level of strange. Uh, some of the some of the steps they've been taking in response to various problems. But but talk a little bit about Turkey and and whether it's potentially through the worst or whether it has the potential to flare up again and the kind of dominoes that um, Turkey getting out of control domestically could potentially topple in the region and beyond. Yeah, I've been working on this a lot um, with um, cognitive investments. And uh, it's not just a plea to sell their gold and put it in Turkish lira. It's also a promise that the Turkish government will reimburse you if the, pri if the, if the lira goes you know wild <laughs> what, 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 what do they say if i had a, if i had a promise from erdogan and a, and a dollar i could buy a cup of coffee or something yeah 
Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's also, it's not just Turkish individuals. He came out, I think it was Tuesday of this week. It's January 13th, the day we're recording and said, it's true for corporations too. So corporations, please, uh, please deposit in Lira. And the crazy thing is some of them have billions of dollars of inflows into, into Lira deposits. It's not everybody. And there have also been increases in cryptocurrency holdings and everything else. Um, but some folks have been actually moving their deposits into Lira. Um, I don't find Erdogan strange or crazy or evil at all. Um, he might be wrong. He's making a pretty high stakes political gamble. And if he fails here, um, you know, his best case scenario is probably sitting in a jail cell. And his worst case scenario is probably something much, much more unsavory than that, um, because he's really kind of betting the house on this thing. I think it's worth yeah. also thinking in terms of, you know, just sort of the broad scopes of Turkey. In the 1980s, the Turkish government uh, passed a lot of economic and political reforms, most of, most of which we don't need to talk about. But they're important to understanding Erdogan because what that did was it tried to basically expand the wealth of Turkey from just Istanbul to the rest of the country. And so they were supporting growth and development in sort of the central part of Turkey, which was smaller, much poorer, more conservative, more religious. And Erdogan rises to power in the early 2000s, as the person who is speaking for that group of the population and is able to marry Istanbul with the interior. And the reason that Turkey has outperformed every Middle Eastern economy by a great degree in the last 20 years is because Erdogan was able to create this virtuous cycle where he was able to basically take wealth out of Istanbul, spread it out, have all of these companies and manufacturing companies sprout out throughout the country. And he also lined the pockets of a lot of these companies with easy access to capital. That's why he doesn't like interest rates. He wants to be able to have all of his cronies and all of his friends that are running these small companies that have done so well over the past 20 years. He knows that they need to continue borrowing money. It's not about Islamism and the Quran, what it says about interest rates. It's that his political base, he has to provide cheap capital because if he doesn't, these people that support him won't support him. And then the opposition can actually kind of threaten him. And he's going into a major election next year. The other thing to think about in terms of Turkey is that as they did that, um, there was a period there, especially in the 2010s, where they just gorged themselves on dollar-denominated debt. And you probably remember back in 2018, there was a currency crisis, and it was Argentina yeah. and Turkey and a couple other countries. And the problem then was a lot of their debt was denominated in dollars. So when the lira did what it's doing right now, it was an existential threat. After 2018, one of the things that Erdogan did more quietly than what he's doing now was he said, we got to stop that. We got to reduce our dollar denominated debt. And we need to get some of this debt into Lira so that we're not so dependent on what the U.S. dollar is doing. Also, geopolitical problems between the U.S. and Turkey are sort of happening in the background at the same time, right? So you get to the present day. It's a very risky strategy. And if you get hyperinflation in Turkey or if you get to a point where even those Turkish business folks who have historically supported Erdogan, some of whom have been brave enough even in recent weeks to come out and question him, that's a huge red flag for Erdogan's political future. If those folks start losing confidence in Erdogan because of his management of the currency, it's game over. On the flip side, though, he has managed to reduce his dependence on the U.S. dollar. He has managed to get more people to kind of go into the lira, and he is lining the pockets of the folks in the Turkish political establishment who are most important to him. So I think he is trying to buy enough time here in this next year so that he can get elected again in whatever next election he calls, and then he'll just have unfettered control after that, and he'll be able to reset things. And I'm, I assure you that once he does that, he'll start, he'll completely reverse course and we'll forget about all this, and he'll start soliciting foreign capital from abroad. But in the meantime, it's a high stakes political gamble to try and make Turkey independent of the U.S. dollar to try and increase the power of, of his political base going into an election. 
he's he's not crazy. Um, it, he just might be wrong. <laughs> I think this, right. this is the right. problem. Hey, listen, he he might just be crazy too. We'll we'll, we'll find out, I guess. Listen, oh, yeah, um, at true. the beginning at, at the beginning of the of the conversation, you know, we talked about how as a as a geopolitical strategist, it had been reasonably quiet times and and pretty smooth and and now things are starting to ramp up and, and you touched on there the need for Erdogan to supply people with cheap capital and that's what's been the driving force and it seems that that quiet period in geopolitics has coincided with this 25 30 odd years of declining cost of capital and we seem mm. to be at a point just as things are getting interesting geopolitically Coincidentally or not, I, I have my thoughts as to you, I'm sure, but we also seem to be at or nearing, if not the end, then certainly the, the pointy part of this era of ever decreasing cost of capital. How aligned are the two? And given the, the enormous amount of pressure there is on the cost of capital to rise, is there anything, if it's so important, that can be done to, to mitigate that? Or are we going to be be seeing you know four Fed hikes this year, and that is only going to amp up the geopolitical uh, tensions around the world. It's a really great question. I'd be curious to to hear your perspective on it too. Where I'm at is that that really depends on inflation, and it depends on whether inflation really is transitory and ephemeral, or whether it's here for the long haul. And when I say transitory, I'm not thinking in terms of three months or six months. Um, I, I think if if inflation is transitory. Um, we're thinking about two things here. We're thinking about how the COVID-19 disruptions and kinks have to work themselves out. So that's been driving things. Um, but then in addition to that, we've talked about a multipolar world. One of the things that happens in a multipolar world is that supply chains completely change themselves. So before everything was just in time, it was lean. You didn't really have to worry about goods getting blocked at one port. You could basically produce wherever you wanted. I mean, it wasn't quite that idyllic, but it was a pretty easy environment. Yeah. Um, that's not true anymore. So if China's going to have regulations or if if Turkey's going to not want to deal with X country because of some geopolitical consideration and it wants to nearshore or reshore some of its manufacturing capacity, that means if you're making goods, you have to build a completely new supply chain. You have to find a new manufacturer. You have to pay the employees. You have to train the employees. You have to buy the ships and you have to figure out how you're going to do all that. And it's not going to be cheap. And that process, I think, is going to take a couple of years. I think we're talking, you know, kind of a two to three year period. But if that's the reason for inflation, if it's really this this juxtaposition of the COVID-19 unwinding with the supply chain things, then to me it's transitory. And then it's about can you manage the system just long enough to get to the point where supply chains are somewhat normalized again, where the system can can deal with itself again and COVID-19 is not the thing that is scaring you. If so, then we're not at the end game. We're sort of in the middle of the game and they can probably kick the can down uh, more than than we're expecting. Um, I love um, I love David McWilliams. Or is, is David McWilliams somebody that you follow regularly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, love David I, I like his, I love him and I, I love his metaphor because he's he talks about, when he talks about financial crisis, he's, he always talks about, by the time you can see the financial crisis, it's inevitable. But when you're a central banker or you're an investor, it's really about just how much time can you buy? Um, and that's what I think about in terms of the answer to your question. So if inflation is because of those two reasons, and once you get rid of those two reasons, it's going to slacken a little bit and we're going to go back to lower inflation rates, uh, th then I think we have some room to run. If not, if Russia really is going to go after Ukraine and is going to halt oil and natural gas exports and the price of energy is going to go 5x, and if we have even worse drought than we're expecting in some parts of the world and the prices of food is going to go 8x and there's no end in sight, 
um, yeah, then they're going to have a really difficult time generating enough resources to buy themselves time and they might get to a crunch. Um, I don't think either situation is set in stone yet. I really do think um, we're at a very critical point where the price of energy, the ability of supply chains to re to respond and and sort of reform themselves on the fly. Are we going to get another COVID nineteen variant? Is it going to shut things down in China or in other major um, economies? Is the food situation going to kind of be a little bit better than I'm expecting, or even worse than I'm expecting? The answers to those questions, I think, will determine whether they're running out of time or whether they're able to sort of push the reckoning out a couple of years. And I, I honestly don't have a very good answer. My answer to you is follow all those indicators. And if those indicators look bad, you have your answer right there. Yeah, you know, I, I guess for me, when I look at it, if it wasn't primarily food and energy that was seeing the biggest updraft, then, you know, I'd, I'd maybe give them more leeway in terms of the amount of time they've got to, to fix this. But if transitory is two years, then forget it. I, I, you know, to me, right now, the only positive I can see that means it may be transitory is that the Fed's given up saying it is. You know, they've mm. they've said, they've finally capitulated and said, okay, it's not transitory. That that's the one positive I've seen that says, hey, you know what? Actually, maybe it is. But I think um, if transitory, we're talking in terms of years, then I think that is going to be a major, major problem simply because it's just geared so much towards food and energy. Well, Jacob, this has been just so much fun. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I dare say we're going to have plenty of opportunities to have more of these as, as things unfold and as, as you get busier. Hopefully I can find the time on your schedule every now and then to, to, to sit and chat about this stuff because it's just so fascinating. Just um, before we go, just let people know where they can follow you and how they can uh, you know, reach out and contact you and, and, and follow up on any of this stuff because it's, uh, as you say, I think it's going to become more and more important as we move forward. Well, first of all, I'll, I'll come on the podcast anytime you want. Now that we've done one, I'll, I'll crack open a beer next time and we can even get a little looser. Yeah, there we go. Um, all right. Now we're talking. But, <laughs> but uh, in terms of where to find me, uh, you can find me a couple of different places. Um, we got connected most recently because I just started writing a monthly um, geopolitical column at Likeon. Um, and it's spelled weird, but it, it kind of, you know, you guys can find it. I trust. Hey, they're I, weird guys. Trust they're weird guys, those yeah. two. They are, but I, I trust that the the listeners can find it in Google with uh, like it'll be in the transcript. Also, don't worry. <laughs> and uh, I'm also I'm uh, you know chief of geopolitical strategy at Cognitive Investments, and I'm also um, the founder and chief strategist at Perch Perspectives. Um, so if, if you look for Cognitive Investments or Perch Perspectives, those are ways to find me. Uh, and I guess because I'm a glutton for uh, for punishment, I'm I'm on Twitter at Jacob Schapp. Um, but we'll see how long that lasts. But for now, you can get my steamy hot takes there as well. So. <laughs> Fantastic. Jacob, mate, thanks very much. I really appreciate this. And uh, we'll talk about it all again soon. Sounds good, Grant. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I promised you a fun conversation and Jacob delivered that in spades. You know, geopolitics is set to become one of the most important variables to try and interpret correctly, I think, as we enter a new era of what looks like significant inflationary pressure. And the global financial system, of course, is still trying to figure out whether it needs a complete overhaul or just more time. So I was delighted to get Jacob's perspectives on how that all may play out. As I said, you can find him on Twitter uh, at Jacob Shep and uh, check out his website at Perch Perspectives. I'll be back again with another conversation soon. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening.
Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.